out of that entire passage, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, I want us to uh, kind of focus on the concept of God freely giving us all things. And so we've studied grace. Grace is God, His unmerited favor. It's when God gives you something you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. God wasn't like, wow, you've been so good. Finally, I'm going to reward you. It's not a reward. Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. And I want us to look at how because God gave us His Son, He can freely bless us in all things. I want us to look this morning at some gifts that we have to know we possess as a true child of God. Number one this morning, every true Christian possesses new life. Look what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us you cannot go to heaven unless you have been born again. That is a really important statement. It is a crisp statement that is unmistakable. You cannot go to heaven simply by belonging to a church. You cannot go to heaven simply by being baptized. You cannot go to heaven simply by believing in Jesus. The Bible teaches us, and I quote, that even the demons believe and tremble. So believing that Jesus, some mental assent that Jesus exists, is not believing unto salvation. In the Bible, the type of believing that leads to salvation is a believing that also leads to repentance. I've given people this example before that you tell a little three or four-year-old child, especially a boy, girls listen sometimes better than boys, but you tell a three or four-year-old boy around the old campfire, don't touch that, son, it's hot. What's the boy do? He waits till you ain't looking, and then he just sees if you're an idiot or not. And he touches it and he burns himself. He comes crying. However, the rest of that child's life, he will never ever do that again. You know why? Because he actually believes the fire's hot now. You see, true belief, real belief in the core of your being, it does change the way that you live. And so Jesus said, a man has to be born again. It's not just about going to church. You know, you can't, you, you can't church your way into heaven. You can't tithe your way into heaven. You can't serve your way into heaven. You can't be nice your way into heaven. God's not up there with some group of scales, like looking at all the bad things that you've done and all the good things you've done. That, that's not how it works. God says, you've got to be born again. Now, that's an important term. Because if you've never been born again, you need to be or you're going to split hell wide open. So the Bible teaches us that through God's grace, God gives us new life. We see it worded this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. So when a person's truly in Christ, they're a new creation. They have new desires. They have new wants. And here's the thing. It's so hard to... I, I say this, it's, it's more to be experienced than it is to be explained. And it is a supernatural act. When we are born again, God gives us a new nature. You have new desires. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. But you're going to find that you're a new person. I remember when I got saved, it was in January. And um, there, there were... There were certain sins in my life that I had done repeatedly as a, you know, as a non-believer. I, and, and, I, and I had no remorse over them. I didn't th- see them as sins. Everyone else was doing the same thing. And then I got saved. And I got saved in the first part of January of 2000. And by the middle of February, about five, six weeks later, I had my first major sin. And I'll never forget about it. I know that it happened on a Monday because Tuesday's prayer meeting. And, and so Tuesday morning when I woke up, I was so guilt-ridden about my sin the day before. I'm like, how do I face these people in prayer meeting? True story, I'm a 20-year-old guy that's sitting there crying all day long about a sin that I'd committed the day before, something that I had done repeatedly for the last four years of my life. So see, I, it's not that I never sinned. It's not that Christians never sinned, but I was broken about it. I was a new creation. I had new desires. I had new wants. And I found when I found myself doing the same old things I once used to do, they weren't gratifying anymore. I absolutely despise that part of me. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? And there is this process as a Christian of like grappling with that and learning like how do I follow the Lord and how do I say no to this old nature of mine But you cannot mistake it, brothers and sisters. The Word of God teaches us that He gives us new life. We must be born again, and it is a gift that God gives. It is a gracious gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something that happens after you put in so many church services. And if you're here this morning, and you're like, I'm not real sure if I've been born again, this is my advice to you. And and I pray... I pray this comes across with a heart of compassion, but you need to hear what I'm about to say. If you're here and you're not 100% sure if you've been born again, honestly, I mean this sincerely, I probably wouldn't go to sleep tonight if I was you. I would find a place to kneel and pray until you know that you know that you know that you know that you're born again. Until all of a sudden you know in the depth of your heart something has changed and I love God now. And I want to honor God. You need to know. You know in the depth of your heart if you love God or not. You know if you really want to honor Him with your life or not. And you know if you sort of feel like this whole Christian thing's a burden that is the right thing to do. So you want to do as little of it as you have to to make your, appease your conscience. You know your heart. And you know if you don't truly love God and you don't truly have a heart to live for Him. And if you don't, you've got to be born again, man. You've got to be born again, ma'am. And nothing could be more important in your life. There's nothing that's more important than that. And so I would find a place to hit my knees and I would pray and I would pray and I would pray again and I would beg God, God, save my soul, change me, cause me to be born again, Lord. Whatever this is, Lord, do it in my life. Give me your desires. Change me from the inside out. God's grace gives us new life, brothers and sisters. 
In Galatians 2.20, Paul said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that God gives us is something altogether new. It is Christ living in us and living through us. Number two this morning, God also gives us a new purpose. God's grace gives us a new purpose. Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, look at these final words, according to his purpose. You know, God has a purpose for us. And and I say that God's grace gives us a new purpose. Probably a better way to word that is that God's grace awakens us to our God-given purpose. Because God has a purpose for everybody. God has a purpose for every single person. But not all have answered that call. Not all can say they are called according to that purpose. But God does give us a purpose. And I want to I wanna kind of, when I was thinking on this point, my mind went to the reality that so many conversations people have with me about, you know, what's the will of God for my life, Joplin? Uh, that's another way of saying what's God's purpose for me. That Typically, what people are looking for are like minute details. And what we find is that biblically, God doesn't normally give us a lot of minute details. Like, you know, am I supposed to be a teacher? Does God want me to be a doctor? You know, does God want me to live in this town? Does God want me to live in that town? Does God want me to drive a Ford or a Chevy? It's a Chevy. That part's that's the only thing that's settled. Actually, it's not. I'm anti-Chevy. Even though I drive one, I found out some of the stuff they were supporting, and it made my blood boil, and I wished I could have given my truck back. So, so I'm sorry that I even gave a shout-out to Chevy. That's it. Sometimes we want the minute details, right? Like, what, are the, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do there? And what, what we find is that biblically, God's purposes for us are generally what I would call in great big principles. And I, I just want to share three. It's not, it's not that there are only three, but I want to share what I would call probably the three biggest great big principles that define my new purpose. And that first principle is that God's purpose for my life is to be in a real and personal relationship with God, where I speak with Him, not just to Him, but with Him. And I learn to hear His voice by studying His Word, by learning to be in that still small place where I give God some time to speak. And I work on an actual relationship with him. Most people are like, so what do I need to do, Joplin? Do I need to go to church once? Do I need to go to church two times a month? Do I need to go to church two times a week? How many scriptures do I need to read? How many hours or time or minutes do I need to pray each day? How much money do I need to give? How much time do I need to volunteer? They want the list of like things so we can check, 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 check. And what we find is God doesn't actually give us that. And when you find that you are in a very real relationship with God, you'll find those things work themselves out. 
those things begin to take care of themselves. And it's no longer about a list of things I must do. It's simply about being in a relationship with God. So that's my first purpose. And that's the greatest and most significant purpose. The veil was torn so that I could enter into the Holy of Holies and I could be with God myself. So I've got to understand that. That's part of my purpose. I want to embrace that purpose. I want to embrace that calling. It needs to be an active part of my life. I should be able to look at my life this last week, and I should be able to demonstrate places in my life where I was with God, where I was talking with God, being with God, listening to God. Number two, I have to recognize that one of my great big purposes is to be a witness in a dark world. It is my job to shine my spiritual light in a world of darkness. So God doesn't just make me have this, want me to have this relationship with him that's just for he and I that none of you guys get to know anything about. It's not supposed to be some secret. It's meant to be public. My friends, my family, my coworkers, my neighbors, the people in my community should be able to look at me and be able to know that guy has God living inside of him. That guy has a light that is unique and significant. Like I can visualize that man, there's something different about him. And I should use that to be a witness to a lost and dying world. All of us as Christians, those of you that are truly born again this morning, this is one of our great big purposes. God didn't just bring us into relationship with him so that we could just have a relationship with him. He left us here. If God just wanted us to have a relationship with him, he would have pulled us right out of this world and taken us to heaven where there's no sickness or death. But he left us here, and this, Jesus taught it, let your light shine before men. And then number three, here's the other great big principle. It's a very important one. And we are to be part of God's body. The Bible actually uses that term many times in reference to the church. It calls it the body of Christ. And we all have a role in that. Romans 12 says it this way. For as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here we see all of us have a role to play in the body of Christ. It's part of my God-given purpose. And I would, I, I, would, I, I would cautiously use the word roles, plural. Like we all have gifts, plural. And so I have roles to play in the body of Christ. You have roles to play in the body of Christ. And so I've got new purpose now. I recognize the reason for my life. It's not about building my little kingdom. It's not about advancing my 
my name and my agenda. In fact, everything that you own, everything that I own, we're not taking it with us to heaven, folks. Doesn't matter how, what, how, what house you own, how many houses you own, what vehicle you own, what vehicles you don't own, what money you have, what money you don't have. None of that matters. You're not taking any of that with you to heaven. And so my purpose is ultimately all, now I've got new purpose because of the grace of God. It's all about Him. My life is for Him. Number three, God's grace gives us new power. In Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We see that God gives us new power. Now, this is so important to understand because God at times calls us through the hard things. But as a Christian, I have to know that God's grace has given me the power to see it through. You know, that's what what Paul was talking about when he said God gives me strength. It's not like, you know, I can do all things through Christ who helps me win a Super Bowl, who helps me buy a yacht, or who helps me be a millionaire. It's like, no, I've learned what it is to go without food. I've learned what it is to be in need. I've learned how to go through the difficult times of life, but through it all, Christ gave me strength to endure. Now, this is important to know. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a pretty kind of classic statement. I couldn't come, didn't come to my mind earlier, and it doesn't really come to my mind right now either. But basically, um, God would never, uh, you know, call you to do anything that, he, that, that uh, you didn't have the strength to do. And this, I've seen people really bash that, like, well, oh, yeah, that's not true. The disciples, you know, God called them to be martyrs. Well, he, he did. But he was still with them through it, and he gave them the strength to do it. There's actually a lot of truth to that statement. That whatever God calls us to, famine, this is what Romans 8 was saying, the sword, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And no matter what we go through, we are more than conquerors. God has given you new power and as children of God we've got to know that so that we don't roll over and give up every time it starts getting hard I've got to know the grace of God it's undeserved it's unmerited but God has given it to me I've got the power through Christ Jesus to endure whatever lies ahead of me not because I'm so strong but because the strength of Christ has been given to me to face the challenges that God has led me through number four this morning we have new hope in Romans 15, 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We are to abound in hope. And hope gives us a reason to keep pressing on. This concept of hope has been lost in American Christianity. Because hope is about the promise of what's to come. That's what hope is. And it is a solid promise. 
And when you study New Testament Christianity, you study the first century church, you know what you find out? You find out they went through hard times, folks. On one hand, the church is exploding. It's really good news. People are being healed. Miracles are happening. But on the other hand, some of them are being martyred. Some of them are being dragged off to prison. It's not like all the growth and all the good was happening in the absence of conflict. These young Christians, they had to endure conflict. Some of them, like I said, were martyred. Some of them were hauled off to prison. Some of them were displaced and had to move to different locations to to try to find safety. They endured hardship. And when you read, you will find there was this one constant theme that kept them pushing on. And it wasn't, hang on a little bit longer and God's going to make all this better. The theme was, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the heaven that waits for us ahead. And this is why Paul says, I think it's even in Romans chapter 8, that the present suffering, it can't even compare to the heaven which is to come. So if this life is but a breath, it's like a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow compared to eternity, and in in eternity there's no sin, no sickness, no death, no pain, no sorrow, no tears. We look forward to heaven and we know that is our ultimate hope. And as a child of God, we have that hope. And I want to say this lovingly, but boldly. If you're not a child of God, you don't have that hope. We are hopeless if we have not truly been born again. If you're not a child of God, the best that you have is this right here. And when this is over, there is nothing but eternal hell for you. That's hopeless. Look what the Word of God says about it in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Christless state is a hopeless state. But for you and I who have been born again, Because of the grace of God, we have new hope. Now, I want to conclude. I want to go back to Romans 8.32, and I want to conclude where we started. I want to share something with you about how God's grace changed my life. So, um, just, just to set the stage for where I was at. Um, I went through an absolute very difficult year and a half of my life that started about six months after starting this church. So everything I'm about to tell you was happening while I was pastoring, showing up every week and preaching. I sunk into a really deep depression for about a year, and then I went through six months that was almost like hell on earth. It was dark. Uh, My mind was so messed up, my heart was so turned upside down, I began disassociating. And what that means is when you're under so much pressure that your brain just kind of quits working and you can be in a room without any consciousness of how many other people are in the room, no consciousness of what time it is or what's going on, Um, my disassociation 
grew frequent enough and dangerous enough that on multiple occasions, I woke up in my truck driving 60 or plus miles an hour down the road on a highway with no consciousness of when I got in my truck, how long I'd been driving, or why I was on the highway. I was as sick mentally and emotionally about as a person can be. And it was a really, really, really difficult period of our lives, as you could imagine. I was mad at God. I'm thinking, God, you know, so the situation I was in was I owned a business that was a very high-pressure business. I saw no exit. The church had grown to about 120 people by this time, and the workload was immense. And... I needed to not be working full-time, running my own business, working 50 to 60 hours a week, trying to pastor full-time. And, and I'm just telling you, there's only so much a human being can do, and I begin, my, I begin to break down. But then I got real mad at God. I'm like, God, you're the one that called us here to start this church. And look at where I'm at mentally. And, and then I begin to deal with this internal conflict with a handful of major problems that I saw as major problems. I'm mad at God. I'm questioning the goodness of God. And now I feel like what God's called me to do is get up and lie every Sunday and try to tell all of you people that he's a good God that you need to trust. And I was so stinking frustrated. I can't exp- I just, words cannot explain this period of my life. We'd only been going for a little over two years. And there wasn't anybody else who could step in and preach. I had to show up. I had to be here. That was going on. And then my home life, I mean, it's just, it, it wasn't good. I'm not the type of guy that yells and screams. I've never called my wife a name during that period of, of those dark times. I was not violent. I'm not a thrower of things. I just disappear. I might as well have been dead. Went about a year and a half without having any real conversation with my wife. She wanted help, but she couldn't. We'd go to bed at night two feet apart, and it'd feel like we were 2,000 miles apart. I knew something was wrong. I remember a time that I was sitting, and I would watch a TV to pretend I was watching TV so people wouldn't pay attention to me. And I'll never forget, there was a time she came in to to address me, and she was literally where I could touch her. But I just thought she came in to get closer to the kids' bedroom so that the kids could hear her. And I thought she was talking to the kids, and she was talking to me, and I was just like a zombie. Like, I was just checked out. And I look back at that period in my life, and I think, uh, think, man, 95% of Christian women today would have left their husband eventually dealing with that. And I'm not saying that she had no right to do so. I'm just, I thank God that she didn't. I thank God that she didn't buy into the, the God of happiness. Everybody nowadays, just God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want me to be sad. Well, God, God that's true. God does not want us to be sad. And, and I do believe God does, is concerned about our happiness to a degree. You imagine how my wife left me during that period of time and just said, I can't handle this. Would have been 14 years ago. Everything we've watched happen in the last 14 years, it wouldn't happen. I would have stepped away from the church. I promise you that. 
I believe what the Word of God tells us about a man that needs to be able to take care of his home before he's taking care of the church of God. I promise you, I would have resigned because I would have known it was the right thing to do. A woman's a rock star. Andrea's amazing. And I'm super thankful to report. That was 14 years ago. Now, what I want to share with you is how did I break out of where I was at? And how did God's grace do that? Because I did. And I mean it when I tell you that in four, I, so I dealt with depression for six years. I, I was clinically diagnosed repeatedly. Clinically given medications repeatedly. And repeatedly didn't take them like my doctors told me to. But something happened. It completely, totally changed my life forever, and in 14 years, I have never, ever, 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 not once, even remotely, sunk back into depression. And when I've shared what I'm about to share with most people so far to date, truth is, I've never seen it change one single person. Just me. The reason why is this. Most people don't actually want to hear the truth. I know because I was there. What most people want to believe is that the reason they are what they are is because everything else around them is so messed up. If this person would change, if this situation would change, my finances would change, if this would change, if my marriage would change, my kids would change, then I could be happy. For me, it was a six-month process, and I'm going to show you, I want to tell you where it all started with me. God absolutely tore me up with a strange passage in Galatians chapter 5, which tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I read that verse, and it absolutely set me back, because here was the truth. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, I'm just being honest with you guys this morning. This is a dark place in my life, but I'm gonna, you just need to understand where I was at. I did not love anybody. I, as a father and as a husband, I had the best type of love that I, I could give at that time, I guess. But I mean, loving people, this is just God's honest truth. I did not love people. I was sick of people. I was sick of the church. I was sick of people wanting my time. I was sick of people wanting to sit down and get counsel. I just wanted everybody to go away. I had absolutely no love for people at all. Joy. That was an emotion I hadn't experienced in over a year and a half. I'm like, joy. I was actually angry at people that had joy. Probably envious is the right word for it, but like, in my mind, they were just fools that didn't have any real understanding of the world around us. I had no love. I had no joy. I had no peace. I had no patience. I was like a ticking time bomb. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I might have appeared kind because there's one thing about me. It's not, it's not good or bad. It's just truth about who I am. I'm a very disciplined person. And I know how to do my job. And I might have appeared kind, and I might have appeared like I was listening to you, and I might have appeared like I cared what you had to say, but deep in my heart, I just couldn't wait for you to shut your mouth and walk away. There was no kindness in my heart at all. And I'm looking at this, and the Bible says the fruit of the spirits love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And I'm like, God, I don't have any of those things. I've got none of it. 
And this is where I had to begin to square with who I was going to believe. Do I believe God or not? Because here's one thing I did know. I knew it. I knew that I knew that I knew it. I was saved. I knew it. I was saved. Something broke inside of me where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to quit arguing with the word of God. And so I started with God. Okay. Okay. I do have love. I do have joy. I do have peace. I do have kindness because you say I have it. But I don't know where it is, man. I'm like, it is so dormant. I cannot even tell you the last time I felt these things. But I'm going to accept, God, that I do have what you say I have. And so the problem must not be everyone else around me. It must be me. And I started a six-month journey of studying the Word of God. And I, some Christian therapy was incredibly helpful for me. I had Christian people in my life that were counseling me in the right direction to really work on what do I believe. And this passage radically changed my life forever. I, I, will know, I, I could take you to the, where I was sitting. I could take you to the chair. It's not there anymore, but I could take you, like in my mind, I could tell, show you where the chair was positioned in the room. I could show you how I was sitting in that chair when all of a sudden I saw what I'm about to show you. And the tears began flowing in my life. And that was the moment in my life God delivered me of depression. So I want to read the passage again. He, verse 32 of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, how could that passage change in my life? I want you to understand what's happening in the passage. In this era of time, when someone would try to write a thesis or an argument, you might call it, one of the common things or themes that was used was what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. And that's what Paul's doing here. And I want to explain what that means, and then I want us to look at the passage again. So here's what the, an argument from the greater to the lesser means. It means that what you want to do is this lesser thing, but you just can't do it yet because you need something to do it. And in order to do it, you have to do something really hard and really great. And if you would do that really hard and really great thing, it doesn't make any sense that you wouldn't do the lesser thing. Here's an example. Imagine you find out that your child has leukemia. and The doctors tell you that more than likely the life can be saved, but the surgery that needs to happen and the, 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 the medications that need to happen, it has to happen within three months. And, and if not, there's a chance it's going to grow out of control and the likelihood is your child's going to die. The problem is you don't have the money, and you don't have the insurance, and you don't have the credit, and you don't have family or friends that are capable of helping. It's a helpless place to feel, especially as a father. The cost is $40,000, and that's after the doctors have brought it way down, but that's the minimum they can take for it. And they're not willing to do the procedure without you coming up with the 40 grand. And you don't have it. But you hear, you're reading the paper, that in the area there's a marathon taking place in three months. And the winner gets $40,000. And you think to yourself, it's impossible. First of all, I've never ran a marathon. Second of all, 
coming in first in a marathon with that type of money for the reward, it seems impossible. But it's your only hope, so you start running. First day, you barely make it to a mile, and you're ready to throw up. You're thinking, this is impossible. By the end of the week, you've made it three miles, and you're thinking, I'm, I, I am barely 10% of the way. I can't even run a marathon on my own, let alone be able to win this thing. But for the next two months, you run your life out, and you do everything possible to get ready for that race. And when the day of the race comes, you run your heart out, and you cross the line first, and you receive the $40,000. There is nobody in their right mind that would wonder, what will you do with that money? Because the lesser thing is giving it to save the child. And if you've done the greater thing, you would surely follow through on the lesser thing. This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. Now look, what this is exactly what Paul's doing. Understand that as we read the passage one last time this morning. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The argument is God gave up Jesus for us so that he could bless us. So how in the world would he not do it? And in my mind, I'm telling you, in Joplin Emerson's mind, I just believe God could not bless me freely until this was fixed, and this was fixed, and this was fixed. And for me, God just was up there with his little hands cuffed, couldn't bless me until my life was in order. And when I saw the truth of it, that God gave his son so that he could bless me, and it's already done, then there is nothing that could keep him from blessing me freely. It was as if the shackles of depression and anxiety and fear, it just fell off. And I, I'm telling you, there was actually a part of me that I felt shame at first. And, and, and it, 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 it's not that God was trying to shame me, but what I realized was I was so blind God had been blessing me freely the whole time. Even though I was a pathetic attitude. I was angry at God. My heart wasn't right. But the church was growing. Sinners were being saved. Had a wife that was staying faithful to me. God was being so good. But I was so blind I couldn't see it. And I recognized that the grace of God, God was blessing me freely the whole time while I'm sitting there like, oh God, why don't you bless me? Why don't you bless me? Why don't you bless me? God was blessing me freely the whole time despite my stinking attitude. And then after I dealt with that and realized that, it was as if the way the world was lifted off and I'm like, God, everything's okay. Everything's okay because if God's for us, who could be against us? He's on my side. It doesn't matter what hardships I'm facing. God's able to bless me freely through it all. I don't need this to change and this to change and this person to change and this situation to change and this to change in order for God to bless me right now today. He gave his son so that he could bless me. He did the greater thing. So the lesser thing is clearly going to happen as well. God is blessing me freely. And it changed my whole world. It changed my whole perspective on everything. I was overwhelmed with how God's plan is so full. It's so complete. 
It's amazing. 14 years. And I'm telling you, I've never, ever, ever, ever went back because when things start to creep up and that heaviness starts to come, I'm just reminded that uh, all things work out for my good. I'm just reminded that God can bless me freely. How could he possibly not? I'm reminded that God gives me strength to go through the hard times. It's a complete change of mind. It's a complete change of perspective. It's, and the, the, what was wild is everything didn't just change all of a sudden. My circumstances didn't change. The things I thought had to change in order for me to have peace, those things didn't change. What changed was I got my eyes off of all that was wrong in the world, and I got my eyes focused up on the God of heaven whose plan is so complete, who gave his own son for us all. And I'm like, how could he not freely bless us? And there was such a sense of peace that came to my heart when I realized I don't have to change everything in my life in order to be in a position for God to bless me. God can bless me freely because of what Christ did. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place at this time. There is nothing that could stop God from giving his son. There was nothing that could stop Jesus from giving his life. And therefore, there's nothing that can stop God from blessing us freely now in all things. I want to close with um, something I've already mentioned. But it has to be said. These promises are to the Christian and the Christian only. So for the Christian, those of us that are truly born again, we have got to know the promises of God. We've got to be willing to focus on them and meditate on them and realize all that we have in Christ so that peace truly rules our heart. You know, when I tell that story of of where I was at, it's a hard story to tell. It still hurts me today to think about it. My story didn't end there, brothers and sisters. I'm talking about 14 years of victory over it all. 14 years of of joy and peace. And I mean this. Our marriage right now is as great as it's ever been. We've been married 22 years. It's just freaking awesome. Andrea's awesome. She's a lot of fun. She's helped me learn to be more fun. Like, things are awesome. My story doesn't end in defeat. My story doesn't end as someone who spent his life shackled to depression. No, the grace of God set me free. And so as a Christian, we got to grab a hold of those promises. And there might be some folks here this morning, you're saved. But the Holy Spirit needs to do the same thing in your heart that he did in me. And that's, that's get you just to be honest with yourself. And quit blaming everybody else for your feelings and everyone else for your attitude and everyone else for your emotions. Quit being a stinking prisoner to everybody else's actions stop it god doesn't need everybody else's actions to change to bless you freely god doesn't need to fix all the wrong stuff in your world to bless you freely he gave his son so that he could bless you freely he did the hard thing you just got to trust him he's capable of blessing you now for those of you that are here this morning that are not truly born again I plead with you. You pray and you pray and you pray and you pray till you know that you know that you know. God's changed that heart of yours. You have a real hunger for God. 